Al-Jazeera podcast. Hey, it's Malika. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to The Take and rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear what you think. February 24th, 2022. After days on the razor's edge, Ukraine is now a nation at war. Kyiv, a city which is truly under siege. Russian forces are rapidly closing in. There have been hundreds of casualties, including civilians. Since then, it's been a year of war, seared into the memories of those inside Ukraine and around the world, through one photo after another. Heartbreaking images of people, bloodied, staggering out of their homes. Images have also become part of the information war, as Russia and Ukraine fight over the truth of what's happening on the ground. And many of the photographers who've been witness to war are now part of it, whether they want to be or not. Here I found kind of purpose in photography. It's definitely changed me. There will be a before and after in my life in so many ways. What has this past year in Ukraine been like from behind the lens? And what does it mean for the future? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. We're talking to two photographers who were in Ukraine from the early days of the war. My name is Serhii Korovaini, and I'm a Ukrainian photojournalist. Where am I catching you right now? I'm in Kyiv, at my home. Serhii works with big international newspapers. He even photographed the Ukrainian president in December for the cover of FT magazine. But he started his career wanting to be a portrait photographer. As tensions with Russia grew, his focus shifted. On the morning of the invasion, Serhii was in the eastern city of Kharkiv. I woke up from explosions and I understood that it's, it was actually happening and I was ready, I was sleeping for a few days fully clothed, just really like a paranoia, and I knew what to do, but I was terrified. Serhii's first thought was of his family and friends, who were almost 500 kilometers away. I spent all day of February 24 just driving back to Kyiv. It was like traffic jams and I saw like fires on the on, on way. And I spent next few days just driving, driving, driving. I picked my wife and my family and I evacuated them to Lviv, which is Ukrainian city on the, next to the Polish border. Only after first few days, I started actually to my job taking pictures and it started to become more and more important for me. I can only imagine that that must have been one of the most terrifying drives of your life, leaving from Kharkiv, wondering if your family and your friends are okay, and Kiev, trying to get there, not really knowing what was going on, hearing explosions. So it makes sense that it took you a while before you wanted to pick up a camera. Do you remember some of the first pictures that you took of the war? Most of them were in Lviv. Uh, I remember many pictures from railway station where there were giant amount of people and especially family with kids touched me, so I photographed them a lot. This is a makeshift shelter above the Lviv train station where medical teams are helping refugees battle deep trauma. 
I remember first Russian attacks on residential buildings, which was like total nightmare. Seeing first buildings crushed from rockets in places where I've like spent years just walking by, it was really tough. So that was the beginning of war for me. Serhii saw many places that he'd photographed before the war transform, like Mariupol, a port city in eastern Ukraine. It's now synonymous with one of the biggest battles of the past year. A desperate last stand underway right now in Mariupol. Bloody battles raging inside the city's besieged steel plant. It, like the rest of Mariupol, is largely in ruins. Can you tell us what the city was like when you were first there? There's one photo in particular that I'm thinking of that you have. You've posted it on Instagram. And you write, this is my beloved Mariupol in 2021 completely ruined by Russians in 2022. And it's, um, it's eerily beautiful. Uh, there's a long dock and one lone person standing at the end of the dock looking out on the water. Talk to me about this photo and what Mariupol meant to you. So picture you're talking about was made across a um, big steel plant called Azovstal. And Azovstal became famous, sadly, as a last fortress of Ukrainian defendants when city was surrounded by Russians. But Barukal felt like a second home for me because when I was a child, I spent so many happy days on the sea coast. I found Mariupol as a beautiful city, nice parks for people, nice new schools, uh, hospitals. You probably saw one of famous pictures of Ukrainian photographer Yevgeny Maloletka when people carrying a pregnant woman from a destroyed hospital. It was a hospital. I spent some time photographing it. And now, of course, just like a mass grave of civilians and a super sad place. For Serhii, seeing his own people face Russian attacks has been a familiar sight for a long time, much longer than one year. You are originally from Donetsk, which has been in conflict with Russia for longer than the rest of Ukraine. Conflict became a reality here in the Donetsk region of eastern Ukraine in 2014, when pro-Russian separatists took over these towns. So what is it like watching first your home city and then the rest of your country turn into a war zone? That's tough. My hometown has been controlled by Russian proxies for nine years, and for nine years I couldn't go there and see my family, my home, my school. So it's something Russia stole from me personally. The war also compelled other photographers around the world to pick up their cameras and go to Ukraine. My name is Natalie Kesar, and I'm a freelance documentary photographer based in Brooklyn, New York. Natalie's great-grandparents immigrated to the U.S. from Ukraine. But she'd never had a chance to visit the country until the war broke out. I am very much an outsider in Ukraine, but also it's in my blood. And I feel that really intensely. It's like, you know, there's something really, really tragic about meeting a, a piece of your, your ancestral homeland when it's being so brutally attacked. Natalie initially didn't have an assignment, but decided to go to Ukraine on her own. She later began working with a reporter from Time magazine along the border with Poland. 
she gradually moved deeper into Ukraine, closer and closer to the front lines. This is my first time covering a full-scale war. It's certainly my first time being exposed to artillery and, and airstrikes and all of this stuff. What I will say is that I was absolutely terrified. Ukrainians are not, this. it's not a choice for them, right? They have no choice but to be brave. And so, you know, I was kind of just following them and there's not just not a lot of space to like think about my own well-being. It's, it's too crazy to fathom if you've never seen it. And then once you do see it, you can't stop thinking about how possible it is anywhere. I think that one of our responsibilities, especially as a visual journalist, is like, how can I make you feel that a humanitarian crisis is not far away and make it relatable? And it is the kids that are smiling when they're on the evacuation train because kids smile for photos. It is like, you know, the woman that's telling her kids a story that the sound of the air raid sirens is a howling wolf or, you know, the babushka, the grandma that like reminds me so much of my grandparents and like that sense of like connection and love and outrage. So, Sarhi, I want to talk about a few of your photos just over this past year, ones that stood out to me. One of them, I think, it's a picture of your wife, and this is April 2022, and she's standing in front of this stack of abandoned cars. They're windowless, and she's covering her face with her hands. Can you tell me about that picture? Yeah, I know what you're talking about. When my wife was able to come back to Kyiv, she said that she wants to see what occupation made with her own eyes. So I took her to places around Kyiv. As a photograph, it is basically a cemetery for civilian cars. All those cars were trying to escape the occupation, escape the war. So they were just like families driving to Kyiv and they were destroyed. I can't claim that it's like all of them were destroyed by Russian soldiers deliberately, but I mean, most of them are. So each car is like a story of a family and it really hit her heart. But not everyone has been equally moved. After the break, we'll look at how images from formerly Russian-occupied areas have come under fire and why that's made the work of photographers more vital than ever. If you need in-depth analysis of news and current affairs in one of the world's most misunderstood and complicated regions, join me, Sami Zaydan, every Thursday on Al Jazeera's Essential Middle East podcast. Ukrainian photojournalist Serhiy Korovaini has been working in conflict zones for years. But he says the hardest photos to take aren't on the front lines, but from what he calls liberated territories, the places left behind after the fighting is over. I've spent time with soldiers uh, in dangerous places, but it's nothing compared to what experience photographing liberated territories after a week doing it, I always need like a few days break to photograph 
liberated places like uh, Bucha, like Izum, like Kherson. And there are so many things which potentially could be called uh, war crimes. Bucha in particular became infamous for the brutality Russian forces inflicted on local residents. Bodies litter the street. Civilians apparently military targets. Left where they fell, who knows how long ago. Ukraine's leaders want Russia to be held accountable for what they call crimes against humanity. Like in Kyiv region, I went to any village which was occupied. I started to talk with any stranger. And my question would be, like, how was it? And was anyone Russians killed? Was it anyone Russians imprisoned? And the answer was always yes. Like, always in every small and big village. Doesn't matter. I heard something like explosions. My neighbor went out to the crossroad and boom, that was it for him. Over there, the whole family is buried. When the Russians came, they shot a man. And the family, they were hit by a missile. A 12-year-old child, a woman, and a man. I do not know exactly who he was. They were killed. They were burnt alive right in front of here, near the road. Natalie was there on the day Ukrainian forces entered Bucha, almost five weeks after it was seized by Russia's military. She says she'll never forget her photo of an elderly woman tearfully hugging a soldier. It was probably one of the most painful, powerful, hopeful, excruciating moments I've ever witnessed in my life. This was the first time that the people who had been living there in bomb shelters, in fear, often without access to food and water, and caught in the midst of constant shelling, saw their own soldiers and realized that they were free. And I think also finally able to, to grieve for some of the things that they had experienced at the hands of the Russians. But photos from these areas have also become a point of contention. The Kremlin claims dead bodies seen on the streets of Bucha were fake and staged by actors. Here's Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov. The Russian military completely withdrew from the city on March 30th. On March 31st, the mayor of the city of Bucha solemnly said that everything was in order for him. Two more days later, we saw how that same staging was organized on the streets, which they are now trying to use for anti-Russian purposes. Serhi has also had his work from Kyiv come under attack. In October, it was the first major Russian strike to Kyiv, and I was there very early, like if minutes after the second strike in center of Kyiv. And I photographed people whose face were in blood. And those photographs really went all over the internet. And I saw that so many like Russians, I don't know whether those are real people or like some bots, came to my Instagram page and said that like it's a gem. You guys put a jam to the faces of those people to claim that it's a blood. Jam. So so 
the stuff that goes on toast. Yes, yes, jam, jam, uh, raspberry jam or cherry jam. Wow. Yeah, some red theme. Yeah. The thing about Swar is there are so many people with uh, smartphones who documenting things right where when they happen. So it's a war in a live stream. You can't hide anything in this war. That's why it's also so important to document it, just to prove that we are in trouble and we are fighting, but we need help. I'm also keeping it in mind that my work during this time is really important. When word believed what happened in Bucha because of work of my colleagues who were there right after, and probably some of my works, I understand that it's tremendously important to document everything. Um, just to make sure that the world gonna see and gonna remember what happened on this land. But as the war drags on, Natalie says finding images that continue to make people remember is a challenge. I see the world completely differently after witnessing that level of brutality. I don't think there's any going back from that. But it's almost impossible to be a photographer covering war and not enter into an impossible moral conundrum because you're making work based on aesthetics in order to generate attention for war crimes, for human rights violations. And that's also really, really tricky because inherently photographing war dances with the danger of glorifying it, of making it sexy. So, Serhi, as we hit the one-year mark, how are you feeling? Did you imagine that it would last this long? I'm feeling really tired, and I'm feeling optimistic at the same time. I always remember what could have happened if Russians actually take Kyiv. And it could be Bucha all over the country. And... I'm really happy and thankful it didn't happen. I think that following month is uh, going to be super important. I'm waiting for Ukrainian counteroffensive, and I'm kind of waiting for an opportunity to photograph more liberated territories, including one day my hometown. And that's The Take. To see Serhi and Natalie's work, head over to Instagram. We'll be posting them to our account at AJE Podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe to The Take. This episode was produced by Miranda Lynn and Chloe K. Lee, with Khaled Sultan, Ashish Malhotra, Nagin Oliai, Amy Walters, and me, Malika Bilal. Our sound designer is Alex Roldan. Our engagement producers are Andy Greiner and Adam Abugad. Alexandra Locke is The Take's executive producer, and Nay Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back on Monday.